You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. This is not your typical work podcast. Sometimes you need to be empathetic. And then there are times that you ask for input, but you don't really give a shit. <laughs> Listen to the Ambi Award-nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Stretch opportunity. What is this, yoga class? Get out of here. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. and welcome to History of the Great War episode 219. This week, a big thank you goes out to Ed and Stephen for choosing to support the podcast on Patreon, where they now get access to special ad-free versions of all of these episodes, plus Patreon-specific episodes, like the current series on the evolution of the Royal Navy and the German Navy before the First World War. I would also like to send a thank you out to Eric for his very generous donation on PayPal, along with a very cool picture of a Latvian certificate of service that was given to his grandfather for his service during the Latvian War of Independence. I cannot pretend to be able to read any of it, but but it sure looks cool. Thank you to everyone for supporting this podcast. When we ended last episode, a nationalist government had been elected in Turkey, but Mustafa Kemal remained in Ankara, even though he had been elected as a representative of the new government. His plan was to wait and see if something would happen that would allow him to advance his position, which might require him to be outside the capital. This opportunity would present itself. The problems in the capital were amplified by the new nationalist government, and the rift between the Turkish leaders and the allies would grow. This would climax in Allied troops, primarily British, occupying government buildings in the capital and unleashing a wave of arrests targeted at Turkish nationalists. This would occur on the night of March the 15th, and news of the events would quickly spread. This was precisely the opportunity that Mustafa Kemal had been waiting for, and he quickly went into action. He sent two notifications to military leaders all over the country. He asked all of them to make sure that there was no violence against foreigners, and then to also disregard any declarations that came from the capital. Disregarding everything from the capital was critical, according to the message, because anything that was released from the elected government might be tainted by Allied influence. After these communications were sent to the military leaders, he then released a proclamation that was spread all over the country. In this document, he denounced the occupation of Istanbul by the Allies, and he would then have a call to action for all of the citizens of the country, saying, quote, Today, the Turkish nation is called to defend its capacity for civilization, its right to life and independence, its entire future. To try and make this future a reality, Mustafa Kemal set up a new government in Ankara, where he was joined by many nationalists who rapidly fled the capital. 
Mustafa Kemal was ready for this exodus from the capital, and he knew what was required. The two main priorities of the new Ankara government were to maintain control over as much territory as possible in both military and political terms. On the political side, the tasks revolved around getting information around, around to the political leaders of the country, but then also to get support from the people. A dedicated propaganda arm of the new nationalist government would be created on April 6th, called the Anatolian Agency. The goal of this propaganda group was to, well, spread propaganda, putting emphasis on all of the successes of the Ankara government while spreading as much information as possible about the failings of their enemies. A key part of this message revolved around xenophobia, a hatred of all foreigners, which was a critical rallying point for the Ankara government in its quest to gain support from the people. The second task was to maintain military control of as much territory as possible. In some ways, this was easier, at least conceptually, due to the fact that so much of the Ottoman military leadership was in the nationalist camp, and many of the leaders of the movement in Ankara were either former or current military officers. On April 23rd, the Ankara Assembly, called the Grand National Assembly, had its first session. This was an important step, but perhaps more importantly, was that one of the very first votes for the assembly was that the president of the assembly would also be the executive head of the government. This would focus all of the power of this government into the hands of just one person. And I will give you just one moment to try and guess who was the creator of that motion to concentrate power, and then made sure that he would be elected the first recipient of all of it. Yep. It was Mustafa Kemal who would be become president of the assembly on April 24th. After accepting the position, Mustafa Kemal would put out a proclamation, now as president of the nation, and he would say, quote, We, your deputies, swear in the name of God and the Prophet that the claim that we are rebels against the Sultan and the Caliph is a lie. All we want is to save our country from sharing the fate of India and Egypt. On April 29th, an important law was passed that dealt with high treason. It sentenced any person who challenged the legitimacy of the Ankara government to death. This was then answered by the government in Istanbul with the announcement that Mustafa Kemal and many other leaders in Ankara should be arrested on sight and also sentenced to death. These competing proclamations of treason would represent the moment, at the beginning of May 1920, that the break happened between the nationalist but allied-controlled government in Istanbul and the nationalist government in Ankara led by Mustafa Kemal. At this point, there was no going back. At the same time that the Ankara government was being created and then solidifying itself, the Allies were negotiating with the Ottoman representatives in San Remo, Italy. These negotiations were the actual official negotiations for the signing of the peace treaty between the Ottoman Empire to end its participation in the First World War, here in, you know, 1920. This was attended by three Ottoman delegates, none of which were recognized by Mustafa Kemal as representatives of his or any other legitimate government of Turkey. Most importantly for our story, these negotiations resulted in a treaty, the Treaty of Severus, which would officially dismantle the old Ottoman Empire, with Palestine, uh, Macedonia, and other areas being removed from the control of Istanbul. It also partitioned Anatolia, with Italy, Greece, France, and the British Empire all being given zones of occupation and control. While the treaty was signed in Italy, it was not official until it was ratified by the Turkish parliament. But the official parliament in Istanbul had been dissolved by the Allied actions, and then officially by the Sultan. 
This put the treaty in a bit of a limbo, with the Western allies recognizing it and trying to put it into place, while those in Anatolia, and especially the new leaders in Ankara, refused to even acknowledge its existence, let alone, you know, willing to obey by its terms. This would set the stage for a confrontation involving nationalist troops under the command of Mustafa Kemal and allied troops commanded by the Greeks. Obviously, the reactions and interactions with the Western allies and the Greeks were important to the future of the Ankara government. There was one other relationship that would be of great concern, and that was with communist Russia. While Ankara was the seat of government of the nationalist leaders, the core of its support was in the eastern territories, and they would soon have Russian forces on their borders. There was a desire on both sides to create some kind of friendly relationship. Mustafa Kemal would send a telegram to Moscow, stating that we agree to cooperate with the Russian Bolsheviks in their efforts to save the oppressed from imperialist governments. He would then go on to outline a possible plan for the two countries to form a relationship in the east. He suggested that the Soviets should move into Georgia, while his government dealt with the Armenians. After they were dealt with, the Russians could then have Azerbaijan. This was acceptable to many communist leaders, and they agreed, although there was still some hope at this stage that Turkey could eventually come under Bolshevik influence. While this possible future Bolshevik revolution in Turkey would not occur, the agreement that Mustafa Kemal laid out in his letter did happen, almost exactly. The Red Army moved into Georgia and Azerbaijan, the Turks attacked the newly independent Armenian government, and in mid-November the Armenians would sign an armistice with the Turkish leaders, which involved large territorial concessions. Then they would become a Soviet republic. The Armenian Prime Minister would say that, quote, "...nothing remains for the Armenians to do but choose the lesser of two evils." The small country had been in a difficult position from the start, and the lack of military support from the West made it almost hopeless. Like so many other countries throughout history trapped between two larger and hostile states, independent Armenia would be partitioned and destroyed. In Ankara, Mustafa Kemal was in an incredibly powerful position. He was head of both the legislature and the executive. He had a majority in the parliament. He could really do pretty much whatever he wanted to. An opposition party of sorts formed as the second group, but it had very little real power, at least in the beginning. Without any real constraints upon his actions, Mustafa Kemal began planning and putting in place his next set of moves, which would in his mind remove all foreigners from the country. Before this goal could be achieved, those that were seen as traitors to the new revolutionary government had to be taken care of. To move things along, on September 11, 1920, an independence tribunal was created by a vote of the assembly. This tribunal was made up of three representatives elected from the ranks of the assembly, and it would function as the highest court, and its rulings could not be appealed. The tribunal would be mostly responsible for trying those believed to be guilty of acts against the revolution. Death sentences were common, but many were given the option of commuted sentences if they agreed to serve in the military. Speaking of that military, the Ankara government also moved to bring the military under more control. Up to this point, an important part of the nationalist forces were irregular volunteer troops. However, there was a growing concern about their discipline, or complete lack thereof. It was generally felt that if these irregular troops were not brought into hand, they might be the starting point for a Bolshevik movement, which was of course very undesirable. While discipline was being instilled in these units, instances of desertion rose, with many commanders choosing summary execution as the punishment, instead of allowing the courts to have their say. These efforts were also occurring at the same time that serious discussions were being had about a general mobilization. 
There was hesitancy among the nationalist leaders to start a general mobilization too quickly, before their power had been properly solidified. Among many formerly Ottoman citizens, mobilization was something that they hoped was in the past, with millions having been mobilized during the First World War, only for so many to die. It would not be until September 13, 1920, after some successes against the Greeks, that we will discuss momentarily, that the Ankara government felt strong enough to order a general mobilization. When this announcement was made, there was unrest, but it was also not strong enough to be a serious threat. Some of us love history. Others used to or never did because history was presented as nothing but the rote memorization of names, dates, and facts. Basically, the story got left out, and that made history kind of suck. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a university professor with a PhD in history, and bringing history to life is my passion. That's why I created my podcast, History That Doesn't Suck. I want to teach you everything you need to know about U.S. history, but I do so through stories. Let me tell you about George Washington begging his men not to mutiny against Congress. Clara Barton saving Union soldiers amid enemy fire enslaved Frederick Douglass, risking his life for liberty, and about so many other figures as their real experiences make industrialization, social movements, and even congressional debates and tax policy come to life. Subscribe to History That Doesn't Suck today, and join me, Professor Greg Jackson, every other week for a new episode, where I'd like to tell you a story. Hello, this is Matt from the Explorers Podcast. I want to invite you to join me on the voyages and journeys of the most famous explorers in the history of the world. At the Explorers Podcast, we plunge into jungles and deserts, across mighty oceans and frigid ice caps, over and to the top of great mountains, and even into outer space. These are the thrilling and captivating stories of Magellan, Shackleton, Lewis and Clark, and so many other famous and not-so-famous adventurers from throughout history. So come give us a listen. We'd love to have you. Go to explorerspodcast.com or just look us up on your podcast app. That's the Explorers Podcast. This is the point where the Greeks really enter into our story, so we should probably take a step back and discuss why they were even in this area of the world to begin with. First of all, there was a general desire among the people of Greece to see their country expand, especially into areas that would be considered classically Greek. Western Anatolia, especially right on the coast, was one of these areas. This included the acquisition of Constantinople, but that was more of a stretch goal. Second, the Greeks had entered the First World War late and on the Allied side, which allowed them to be on the winning side during the peace conference. During that conference, they would, be espe- they would have especially good relations with the British. In these relations, they were led by their Prime Minister, Venizelos. The Prime Minister was a persuasive speaker, which the other Allied leaders generally had very high opinions of. The British and French saw the Greeks as a way to extend their power into the Eastern Mediterranean, and this was strategically important for the British, who wanted a strong friend in the Eastern Mediterranean to help make Egypt more secure. Finally, and most understandably, there were a large number of Greeks in the port cities of western Anatolia. In this region, the situation was not that much different than what we discussed a few episodes back in Lithuania, where the cities were heavily Polish, but the countryside was mostly Lithuanian. 
Here, the port cities of western Anatolia, like Smyrna, were heavily populated by Greeks, but the surrounding countryside was heavily Turkish. The Greek leaders would use the presence of so many Greeks as their excuse to send Greek troops after the armistice had been signed. The Greeks had two large advantages when it came to the political situation. They were strongly connected to the Allies, but they were also the strongest Allied military power in the region, and this meant that when the British wanted to project more power into Anatolia, they did not have the manpower to actually do it, and so they turned to the Greeks. The Greeks agreed to send more troops to assist them, but only if they were allowed to advance out of Smyrna and into western Anatolia, which they hoped to capture and then retain as new territory to be incorporated into Greece. After permission was granted for this movement, the Greek army would advance out of Smyrna and into Anatolia. At the same time, they would be allowed to advance in Thrace, taking the city of Adrianople. In Anatolia, they would advance mostly unopposed, and by August they would be 250 miles inland. After advancing over 200 miles, the army needed a pause, so in August they paused for over a month, only to then begin the advance again in October. After they pushed forward again, they still experienced very little Turkish resistance, and they would only stop due to political pressure from the Western Allies, who were concerned that the Greeks were taking over too much territory. While the Greek army was advancing, and Allied political pressure was mounting, back in Greece the entire political landscape cataclysmically shifted. In October 1920, the King of Greece, King Alexander, died from, and I checked my note twice on this one, being bit by his pet monkey. Anytime a monarch dies unexpectedly, there can be some instability, but in Greece at this point in time, it was so much worse. Alexander had been placed on the throne by Venizelos and other Greek politicians, with no small amount of help by the Allies, because they wanted to join the First World War on the side of those Allies. Alexander's father, King Constantine, was still alive, and he would be placed back on the throne when his son died. Obviously, he was not the biggest fan of Venizelos and the others who had deposed him. There were elections scheduled for November 1920, which could have given the king a new prime minister to work with, but in these elections it was assumed by just about everybody that Venizelos would retain his position, but then, well, he didn't. This result completely blindsided everyone, King Constantine, Venizelos, the Allies, everyone. There were some warning signs that it might happen, the economy was a wreck, and there was some level of discontent with continued fighting, but it was still a huge shock. A new government had to be created, and this new government found itself working under the same constraints that Venizelos had been having problems trying to reconcile. The new government did not feel that it could order a retreat in Anatolia. To do so would be an admission of defeat, which would probably bring the fall of that new government. The other option was to continue the attacks, but to do so required money. Up until this point, the French and British had been essentially bankrolling the Greek war effort in Anatolia. This financial aid would be removed when Venizelos was replaced. This prompted serious conversations in Paris and London about whether or not they should continue to support the Greeks at all, or if they should just completely remove themselves from the situation. They hoped to be able to construct some sort of peace agreement between the Turkish nationalists and the Greeks, but the two groups seemed so far apart politically. The Greek leaders even threatened to land troops in Istanbul and take it over from the Allies. There were even units loaded onto ships that sailed for the capital. But this bit of brinksmanship was designed to force the Allies into action, and it didn't work. While these moves were being ordered from Athens, a large purge of Venizelos-affiliated officers was occurring in the military. Some of the army's most experienced commanders, many of which had been in command since the Balkan Wars and then through the First World War, were removed. 
This threw the army into some confusion as new officers tried to take command at a critical moment. Even with all these challenges, there was still a belief that some form of retreat was simply impossible, and there was the reality that the Greek army could not stay where it was, and so the only option was to attack. This next attack would begin in the spring of 1921. The previous Greek attacks had been incredibly successful, but the enemy they would face in 1921 would be very different than what had been in front of them during the summer of 1920. As I mentioned earlier, after the Greeks had moved inland, they had paused their advance due to allied political pressure, and this delay in further attacks greatly benefited the defenders. The Greek advance had galvanized the nationalist support, and Turkish leaders in Ankara had spent the next five months doing everything they possibly could to bolster the strength of their forces. When the Greek attack began again in the spring, they were still able to advance, but it was very different than at the end of 1920. Instead of encountering almost no resistance, they were having to fight their way forward. Their attacks would continue throughout the spring as the Greeks continued pushing closer and closer to the nationalist capital of Ankara. The problem for the Greeks was that the attacks became more and more costly and advanced shorter and shorter distances. Eventually, the attack was launched that was unsuccessful and was met by a counterattack that forced the Greeks to move back to the west. This was an important moment because it was the first true success by the Turkish forces against the Greeks. The Greeks would reinforce the front and the next attacks would be launched in July. These would be the largest attacks since March and their goal was to surround the Turkish forces to the north. If this could be completed, then they would be able to regain the numerical advantage that they had previously enjoyed. By this point in the campaign, the number of Greek troops, about 125,000, were attacking into roughly the same number of Turkish troops, about 122,000. The Greeks did have a serious advantage in terms of artillery and machine guns, and they would use these advantages for some early successes. Most importantly for the Turkish defenders, the Greeks were unsuccessful in their primary goal of surrounding large numbers of Turkish troops, who were able to escape the attempted encirclement with a quick retreat. Their retreat was not exactly tidy, and tens of thousands of men would desert during the movement, but the army remained at least somewhat intact. The Greek attack was in some ways successful, it gained more territory, maybe a few important towns, but it was a failure in its primary objective of drastically reducing the fighting capabilities of the Turkish troops. After this attack began to slow and then stop, there were serious concerns both in Greece and among the British leaders about the position of the Greeks in Anatolia. They had captured a lot of territory, nobody could deny that. But now they were advancing deeper and deeper into the Anatolian desert, without a real plan beyond just going further. Up to this point, the nationalists had been constantly retreating, and they had always done so mostly successfully. This led the Greeks deeper and deeper into the country, and soon they were finding it very difficult to keep their supply lines together and functional over such large distances. There were also problems with the demographics of the areas that the Greeks were now occupying. Early in the campaign, the Greeks had been attacking into areas that were populated by large number of Greek citizens. These citizens were often excited by the developments happening around them. However, now the Greeks were adding territory that was populated by hostile citizens, who very much did not want the Greeks to be in control. This led to more instances of civilian disorder, and the Greek army could not count on the support of the countryside, increasing the need for security troops. Regardless of the problems, the government in Athens, faced with the question of what to do, were determined to push forward. They knew that they could not stay where they were, with their troops wasting away in the Anatolian desert as the enemy continued to grow stronger. They ruled out retreat, and so the only option was to attack. Their next attack would be a complete disaster. 
and soon the Greek forces would no longer be advancing or even holding on to their positions, they would be retreating, and that retreat would not end until they reached the Mediterranean. 